Good morning, everyone. Come on in. We're doing some of the greatest parts of soteriology today. Can we close the doors back there? That would be great. Thank you. If anybody's keeping track, this is Module 4, Session 11, Soteriology Part 7. And this is uh, this module is kind of the, the deepest and the the longest, so I always want to try and get started if we can. Soteriology 7, Sanctification, Union with Christ, and Glorification. And as always, uh, if we don't get through it, then we'll continue it next time. Let's bow together in prayer and get our Lord's Day started. Thank you, Father, for this time we have together to gather in the sanctuary, to gather in the place where we will discuss and think on your word and on things that are eternal. We thank you for this Lord's Day that we have set aside, Lord. Uh, we, we're no longer under a Sabbath law, and we understand that. At the same time, we also grasp that the believers in the New Testament worshiped on the Lord's Day, and they continued to call it the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to give the very best to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this day that we can leave the difficulties and the problems and the challenges and the trials of life behind for a bit, and we can gather just to think on the truths that lift our souls heavenward. Help us to think on Christ, on Christ's likeness, and on the glory of our salvation this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, here we go. We have a lot. These are massive, massive doctrines that we're going to hit in just kind of uh, broad terms here. We're going to start with the doctrine of sanctification. And fortunately, I think we talk about this enough that uh, I hope this isn't new. But one thing I've learned being a pastor is you can't ever assume that the whole church is in the same spot theologically. So this is why we review and do these things over and over again. Sanctification, according to Wayne Grudem in the Systematic Theology, is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now, that definition sometimes makes people nervous when they say a progressive work of God and man. You notice he's not saying salvation, but sanctification. Sanctification is a part of salvation. But if you didn't have a part in your sanctification, then we would do no application to preaching, right? So, of course, there's, there's a part you have. Milton Erickson, in particular, sanctification is the Holy Spirit's applying to the life of the believer, the work done by Jesus Christ, and Anthony Hakma, the work of God by which he makes us holy, we call sanctification. I like that definition, the work of God by which he makes us holy. And that's in a book called Five Views on Sanctification. So we have to understand, and when we talked about justification, we said this also, but now we're on the other side on sanctification. We have to understand the relationship to justification. And this is very important because the Roman Catholic Church doesn't make a distinction between justification and sanctification. It's the same thing to them. And that's where they go completely off the rails. That's why you can't get saved with Catholic doctrine. Can you get saved in the Catholic Church? No. You can get saved despite the Catholic Church. But you cannot get saved in the Catholic Church unless you happen to believe a scripture that was read and you happen to hear it in a language you can understand and you got saved by the work of the Holy Spirit, but you cannot get saved in the Catholic Church. You get saved despite it. Um, which is why, by the way, somebody says, well, I'm a believer, but I'm going to stay in the Catholic Church. Then you're not a believer. It's that simple. What, what partnership does darkness have with light? And this is the crux of the issue. Sanctification and justification are related, but they are not the same. So here's some of the relationships. Through justification, repentant sinners are declared righteous. That's a declaration. We've said that already. And through sanctification, he makes them more and more actually righteous. And the more and more is an important part. And so sanctification is the making of righteousness. Justification removes the guilt of sin. That's a judicial thing. Remember we use the word um, uh, the word just left me. It starts with an F. It'll come back to me eventually. Um, we used the idea of, of legal guilt. Forensic. That's what it was. I don't know where my brain went. Of forensic guilt. Legal guilt. Justification removes that. Sanctification is the process of removing the actual pollution of sin. 
the actual, there's an actual cleansing that happens in your life where you're becoming more and more like Christ. Justification is the work of Christ for us. Sanctification is the work of Christ in us. Justification isn't an experience you have. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a tingly feeling you get. Justification, quite honestly, is something that happens in heaven. Justification happens in the, in the record books of heaven, so to speak. But sanctification is the work of Christ in our hearts, in our lives. Justification liberates us from the penalty of sin. Sanctification liberates us from the power of sin. Now, I will say this. I will say that justification does liberate us from the power of sin in the sense that because you are justified, you are now being sanctified. Um, and, and I take, a, take the view of Romans 7 where it speaks of I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I ought to do. That's not Paul saying that I'm struggling in my Christian life. That's Paul saying that's what I used to do as a God-fearer before I had the Holy Spirit before I was saved. And so uh, we are, in a sense, justification enables the liberation from the power of sin, but we won't make them exactly the same. There's a couple of errors to avoid, and I don't have this on a slide, but just a couple of errors to uh, avoid, and they're opposite from one another. The first error is a complete separation of justification and sanctification. That's, that's erroneous. Sanctification isn't optional. Um, and you might say, well, nobody believes that. I would say the majority of evangelicalism, meaning anybody who says I've passed by a church once, says they're an evangelical, the majority of evangelicalism in America believes that sanctification is optional. In fact, they make fun of us. They call us people who believe in what they call lordship salvation. Actually, we had to call it lordship salvation to say salvation includes the lordship of Christ. Um, There's no such thing as saying, I made Jesus my savior. First of all, you didn't make him your savior. There's no such thing as saying, I made Jesus my savior, and later on, I made him my lord. That does not exist. If he is not your lord, then he is not your savior. There's no such thing as a Christian who needs to make Christ his lord. That, does, that person does not exist theologically. So that's the first error, a complete separation of the two. The other error, and I've already mentioned this, the Roman Catholic view is, is no distinction between justification and sanctification. Now, just to be clear, when we say no distinction, how do the Catholics uh, define justification? They define it as a process as something that continues on. And as we've said before, you kind of roll the dice and hope that process finishes by the end of your life. So those are the two errors to avoid. We don't completely separate them, but we don't completely make them uh, indistinct from one another as well. Let's look at some of the language of sanctification. And this is, this is interesting for us. We get our word sanctify from a Latin term um, that means to make holy. Sanctus, which means holy, and facere, to make, so to make holy. And that's, so it's a good word. The Old Testament, we have a bunch of variations on the same root, the Hebrew root word. You have kadash, which means to be consecrated, to be holy. It's a verb. You have the noun kodesh, which refers to apartness or holiness. It's, an, it's adjectival or it's, a, or it's a noun rather. And then you have the adjective Kadosh, which means holy or pure. It's a description either of God or of a man. All of those roots, all of those words come from one root, which means to cut or to separate. And, and if you've ever, uh, in our family, sometimes we'll make omelets. And we like bacon omelets. And so we'll fry up a whole bunch of bacon, and then we chop it up into a million pieces, and then we take... If there's four of us, then I take a knife and I cut the middle and separate into two piles. And I take those piles and cut and separate because it's a major thing in our family if you don't get the right amount of bacon. So we keep that as even as we can. But it's a very simple thing to understand. You have been connected to the world, to a sinful system, to your flesh. You are cut and separated away. That's what it means to be holy, to be sanctified. You're different. 
The primary sense of sanctification in the Old Testament is ceremonial. Anything or anyone set apart and devoted to God. And you have, there's quite a list of things that are set apart in the Old Testament. You have angels and priests and prophets, the people of Israel, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the tabernacle, the altar, the temple, the Sabbath, holy days. And so in the Old Testament, you get this glorious illustration. It's all over. In fact, your entire life illustrates sanctification. What are the purpose of the dietary laws? I read this on social media the other day that the purpose of the dietary laws was to keep Israel uh, healthy because they didn't eat foods that were unhealthy for you. And it's always the old argument, well, because pork goes bad so fast. You know, I think they knew how to cook meat. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that they were totally distinct. They were separate. The dietary laws showed that. All of the laws showed that. In fact, the, the, the fact that they had a God who spoke a law to them in the first place showed that. But in the Old Testament, then you have the secondary sense of holiness, moral and ethical separation. In later books in the Old Testament, such as Psalms and Proverbs, that now becomes primary, though. You have holiness as the doing of righteousness, of speaking truth, walking humbly. So the basic idea in the Old Testament is holiness, purity, being set apart, being cut apart, being different. And you avoid whatever displeases the Lord, which is why, for example, in the book of Ezra, when the exiles come back and they've supposedly been completely purified and they're now humble and they're ready to serve the Lord. And after just a few years, what do they start doing? They start intermarrying with other with pagan peoples all around them. They're not separating. They're, they're going back to the world. So the basic idea is separation. That's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament. Did I get the right? Oh, hang on, let me go back. Do I not have a New Testament slide? Well, New Testament. Picture there's a slide there that says New Testament. It went somewhere to, uh, I don't know where it went. The New Testament is very similar. The main word we use in the New Testament means consecration or holiness. And we get our word saint or sanctified one sanctified one you might say that if you're in the south he's sanctified and so sainthood or sanctification that's not an attainment it's the state in which uh, god and his grace calls sinful men we begin our course as christians as saints so saints aren't perfect people they're people who have been set apart in the new testament the sense of sanctification is primarily stopping sinful practices setting yourself apart from the world and consecrating yourself to God's service. It's, and this is, I want to be very clear about this because the, the difference between sanctification and legalism can be very confusing. Legalism is I stop doing good things or stop doing bad things rather and start doing good things because that makes God happy and therefore that's the definition of my, my Christian life that I'm going through this list of things to do and not do but that, has, that, speaks, that speaks nothing of your heart. The heart of sanctification is being totally dedicated to God and having a heart desire to be separated from everything that's sinful. That's the heart of sanctification. Those lists might look similar, but it's the heart that makes the difference. And so what's the lesson here? If you put Old Testament and New Testament ideas together, we don't want to lose the Old Testament sense of ceremonial sanctification, of, of setting apart, setting apart a day of worship, for example, not as a law, but as a principle, setting apart a time for prayer, setting apart a time for knowing God and his word, setting apart um, your actions, setting apart that there are certain places in our town you're not going to go, setting apart there are certain words you're not going to say because you are sanctified and you are following after Christ, following after the Lord. And I would say this, I, I want to emphasize not losing the Old Testament sense of ceremonial sanctification. I think the Bible church movement, which really started in the, in the late 20s, early 30s, got really going in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. The Bible church movement went so far away from ceremonialism that it lost the sense of worship in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a, 
there, there's almost this idea that we need to be as informal and as, as just plain as possible. And I don't see that in the Bible. What I see is, is that we stop and we, we consecrate ourselves to worship. Um, we, our worship service here, we try hard not to let anybody bring their coffees in. Why is that? Is that because it's a legalistic rule? No, we're trying to maintain a sense of worship because if the Lord Jesus Christ came and stood right here in all of his glory, you would not sit right here and sip a latte. You would not do that. I have a friend who uh, is getting back into the church after many, many years, and he, I've been trying to help him find a church back in the east, and he found a church, and he's complaining to me. He says that, uh, boy, they, they're, they, their teaching is so good, it's so solid, but they're very stodgy. And so I called him. I said, what do you mean by stodgy? He said, well, when, when you get to the sanctuary doors, you get, you get in and it's quiet in there. And they've got, they've got music going and they have people in prayer. And they're, they're, they're just, and then they're, they, they use a hymnal. And I was like, oh, heavens, you know, we use a hymnal. They use a hymnal and they, they recite creeds and they recite the Lord's Prayer together. And they, they stand for these long readings of scripture. I mean, he read a whole chapter of the Bible. And I just, I just asked him, who is worship for? And he was quiet for maybe 20 seconds. And he said, well, it's supposed to be for God. So is it or not? And I hope that was a life-changing moment. I'll, I'll, I'll find out after today because he's going back. But we have a view of worship that has forgotten, I think, the Old Testament sense of having a fear to come before God of having a trembling to come before God. And so I, I always hope that at Grace Bible Church, we maintain that, that we are trying to be fearful while gloriously saved. And we don't leave that behind. So we're, we're consecrating, we're separating out. Our day of worship is consecrated. It's, it's different. So that's just a little side note there, which you know we take all the time. Now we're on this slide. Categories of sanctification. We've talked about this so many times, I'll bet some of you can mouth these words, which is good. Uh, Three categories. Positional sanctification. The Christian is set aside for God's possession and is declared holy by faith in Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, don't don't take that as sanctification and justification as being the same thing. They're named in the same verse. You were sanctified, you were justified. In this particular part of sanctification, positional sanctification happens simultaneous to justification. So in other words, they're, they're overlapped. Are you eating the chocolate syrup or the ice cream first? They go at the same time. All of justification, or all of sanctification rather, is not the same as justification, but the first part of sanctification begins at justification. So you were sanctified, you were set apart, you were cut, you were separated when you were justified. But then we move into where we all are right now, and that is progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the believer's continual advance towards spiritual maturity, It's that process of being progressively set apart from sin toward a moral conformity to the image of Christ. What's the beginning point? The beginning point is regeneration, when you are saved. Um, Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not by any righteous deeds that we had done, but by his mercy through the washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. So there's there's washing that happens and it begins there. And I want to be very clear about this. This is where... Right here, I was going to point back there, but that doesn't do any good. Right here, progressive sanctification is where the church generally fails. The church fails because instead of the pulpit being about making you more like Christ, the pulpit becomes about making you feel good. Or as uh, a famous book apparently is going to be famous by Tim Tebow coming out, the whole theme of the book is that God believes in you. Find me one verse in the Bible that says that. God does not believe in you except he believes you're worthy of hell. The issue is, do we believe in God? And if we believe in God and we've come to faith in Christ, then we are 
to be sanctified. And where the church fails is they have a, a, an American evangelical theology of making you feel good, of doing everything to pander to you. And the irony is, is that it doesn't work and it doesn't help you. It just makes you less and less like Christ. I'm just curious, and well, I, I already know the answer to this, so I won't ask for a show of hands. The most common story I hear of people coming to Grace Bible Church from other churches is, wow, I've been sitting under preaching for 30 years and I haven't grown. Why is that? Because they're not pushing you. What is growth? It is pushing toward Christ-likeness and obedience. And that's the whole point of the church. That's our motto, right? Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim that we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's, that's our entire goal. Not just to know Christ, but to become like Him. So I, I want to emphasize this progressive sanctification. I think we could easily say progressive sanctification is the goal of the church. It ought to be. It's my goal every Sunday in the pulpit. We are, let me add some verses to this. We're growing in knowledge. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're putting off and putting on. Ephesians 4.22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is, by the way, if you, if you wonder, if you didn't come to the Stuart Scott seminar, you weren't able to come and you say, what is biblical counseling? That's it. Putting off the old man, putting on the new. So a first question you can ask somebody you're counseling with, well, you're having these problems and it's due to your own sin. Do you want to put that off and put on what's new or do you want to just stay wallowing in, in what you used to be? It's a very simple question. You have the contrast between flesh and fruit. Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And how are we to do this? Well, it's by means of the word of God. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's why we preach the Bible, because only the Bible has the power to make you like Christ. That's it. And then you have one of my favorite subjects, perfected or ultimate sanctification. This is completed at our death, for our souls, and when the Lord returns for our bodies. Kind of a, a, a couple of phases there, and we'll look at that in a bit. Hebrews 12, 23, Philippians 3, 21, the, the ultimate sanctification. But we should be very clear, perfect Christ-likeness only occurs at the coming of Christ and at the resurrection when we see Him. 1 John 3, 2, kind of our classic verse on this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So you notice here, we are, oh, I didn't put the verse up there. So I'll just point it out to you. We are God's children now, positional sanctification. What we will be, we will be like him when we see him. That is ultimate sanctification. So we have that, those two facets in the same uh, verse. Now I want to just do a little brief note about entire sanctification or second work of grace. I appreciated that uh, Stuart Scott brought this up a couple of weeks ago. This topic is personal to me because I grew up in this system and not only grew up in it, but grew up in the oppressive nature of this system and the fact that um, some good and godly people like my dad believed in entire sanctification, believed in the second work of grace and believed that he had never attained it. And so he had, uh, if I might use this term, spiritual low self-esteem because he thought there were Christians way above him. My dad was about the godliest man I've ever known. If I could ever say maybe somebody actually attained entire sanctification, it would have been him. But he, he didn't believe that. So where do we get this? The Wesleyan Methodism, Wesleyans, the holiness tradition, free Methodists. Here's why I was uh, saturated in this, my grandfather on my dad's side was a free Methodist pastor. My grandfather on my mom's side was a holiness pastor. So we got like nuclear second work of grace in our family. It was all over the place. Church of God holiness, uh, the Nazarene church, 
uh, Christian and the Missionary Alliance, Pilgrim Holiness Church, Salvation Army, and so forth. Generally, this is also has bled over into Pentecostals and Charismatics. They just have a different name for it, the baptism of the Spirit. But all it is is a reworked, a uh, little more glitzy idea of a second work of grace, entire sanctification. What did Wesley believe? He didn't hold that entire sanctification meant absolute perfection, but he called it a relative perfection. It's kind of an oxymoron, if you ask me, but a relative perfection that involved freedom from willful sin. Now, there are a lot of other words that could be used. You don't sin on purpose, but you can be ignorant, you can make mistakes, you can have temptations, and you can have involuntary sin, but you're sinless. You're sinless. Not faultless, but sinless. How you make that distinction, I have no idea. But that's what they made. This is based on the mischaracterization of passages like Matthew 5.48. You should, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, that's the goal, but it's not attainable. It's our, it's our hope, but it's not what's going to happen. Um, and, and by the way, this, this adjective here, you must be perfect, it doesn't have to refer to sinlessness. It can refer to spiritual maturity. And so that's a debate, and you don't want to base a, a huge doctrine on one word that can mean two different things. Now, here's the irony. Was John Wesley saved? Absolutely. You will see John Wesley in heaven. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he honest about his own sin? I think he was, because the very man who taught about the second work of grace believed he never attained it. And so he was, he was humble in his own sense. The New Testament tells us that believers sin. If you didn't sin, you wouldn't need to show up on Sunday. And if you didn't show up on Sunday, you'd be in sin. And so it'd be a self-contradiction. But Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts or our sins. Matthew 6, 12. In John 13, 10, Jesus said that those who are clean only need their feet washed. What does that mean? It means you don't need to be forgiven for salvation. You need to be forgiven for fellowship with Christ, fellowship with the Lord. Paul said that he had not yet been made perfect. Philippians 3.12. James 3.2 says, We all stumble in many ways. And 1 John 1.8 declares that those who deny sin is in their lives, they're deceiving themselves, they're liars. In fact, we could say, if somebody says, I am sinless, there's reason from 1 John 1 to assume that person may not be saved because they are self-righteous. So, Entire sanctification, second work of grace. You don't encounter that here at Grace Bible Church, and I'm glad for that. I hope you never do. But that is the majority position of so many denominations in our, in our country. So as you come across those people, um, that's something you want to be aware of and understand. So any questions on, before we go on to the union with Christ, any questions on the doctrine of sanctification? I know we just hit some mountaintops but I want to just find out if you had any questions before we keep on going. It's okay if you don't. I told you everything I know already anyway, so. Any on this side? All right. You're fully sanctified. Yes. So Caleb. In heaven, will we, will we become perfect? Well, that is the glory of 1 John 3, 2, that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. So, uh, we will never sin. They'll never mourn. There will be, uh, your character will be made perfect. Um, yet we're expected to work towards that here, that, that we want to become more and more like Christ. Um, now, this is a broad verse when it says, when he appears, we shall be like him. <clears throat> that, that's just a general word. There's a, there's a word in theology called the parousia. It just means the, the appearing of Christ overall. And so... If you're alive, when the rapture occurs, you'll see Christ and you won't, you won't what the Bible says, taste death. Uh, if, as probably all of us will, uh, when you die, it will be technically you appearing before him, not him be appearing before you, but the effect will be the same. Um, but there, there, are some, there are some steps. Um, your resurrection won't have happened yet, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, as far as... Um, at the end of your life here on earth, yes, you will be sinless. Perfect character. So, you know what our hope is, and we've talked about this a lot, is that that's not a big jump. 
that, uh, that the people who know you in heaven don't say, wow, you're way different than when I knew you on earth. Maybe it's just a little different, but that's our hope that, that we are sanctified more and more and more such that at the end of our lives, we're close and we're as much like Christ as we can be in a sinful world. Thank you, Kayla. That was a great question. Any other, any other questions? Sanctification? All right, let's see if we can get started on union with Christ. Union with Christ. I'll give you a definition to start off with. Simply stated, this doctrine is that the life of Jesus Christ, risen, glorified, and dwelling within the believer, is the life of the Christian. It is the life of the Christian. This doctrine is that the life of Jesus Christ, risen, glorified, and dwelling within the believer, is the life of the Christian. Union with Christ is immensely important. It's, it's a part of who we are. We're not attached to Christ. We're not, uh, we don't come alongside Christ or he doesn't come alongside us. Jesus is not your co-pilot. Jesus dwells in you. He even promised this through the Holy Spirit, uh, which the Bible sometimes calls the Spirit of Christ. So there is union with him. That's why uh, we have so many wonderful benefits being in Christ. So let me just really quickly fly through some historical views. One historical view is what's called the ontological view. Ontology is just the study of existence, the, the study of being. The ontological or mystical view says that union with Christ is a mystical absorption into the divine life. I don't even know what that means, but that's what the view says. That, that you lose your personality, your personhood as you morph into Christ. And so you become kind of a, a, a there's a sameness to everybody. That basically human personality is extinguished. Jesus takes over and actually lives the person's life. Now, I don't know about you, but logic tells me that if that were actually the case, then I would have quit sinning a long time ago. If I've been absorbed completely to, to be Christ, um, I would have quit sinning. Now, this view appeals to one of the greatest verses on union with Christ, but I think it does so in an inappropriate way. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me, lives in me. And so they'll, they'll stop there. Well, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But that's just the first half of the verse. The second half of the verse says, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't want to base theology on experience, but once in a while, an experience is so obvious that it corresponds to right theology. Do you know any Christian that became instantly just like Christ and lost their personality utterly? That doesn't happen. We are who we are because God created us that way. We're just the growing, perfected version. In other words, all the wonderful things about you will still be wonderful about you in heaven, just the perfected version. Then there's the sacramental union view. Some hold the people united with or incorporated in Christ by partaking of the sacraments, baptism, and, and the Eucharist, what the Roman Catholics call communion. That would be Roman Catholics and, and a lot of Lutherans. That's based on the mischaracterization of John 5.33 that speaks of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Son of Man. Um, that's not what that's talking about. Jesus also said that he was a door and he was a vine. We don't take those literally. Um, that would be absurd. It also would be absurd for because the sacramental union says that to stay in Christ, you have to continue receiving the Eucharist and that Christ is actually present in the elements of communion. So you're, you're actually essentially doing what the book of Hebrews says not to do again, crucifying Christ over again. Then you have the, the covenantal union view. That the elect are united with Christ as a result of his federal headship under the covenant of grace. And just so you know, uh, we have a couple of hymns in our hymnal that where you sing of the covenant of grace. How should you take that? Because there is no such thing as the covenant of grace in the Bible. It's not named. So when I sing those words, I think of the new covenant. That is the covenant of grace. Sometimes those things sneak into our hymnal, but you can 
uh, the hymnal is not inspired. So you can just think inspired thoughts when you get to those, those lines. That's the covenant theology view. You have the moral union view. The union with Christ is in friendship, trust, and fellowship. So uh, to make this easy, the ontological mystical union goes way too far. The moral union doesn't go far enough, if that makes sense. And then you have the experiential, experiential union view. The union with Christ is a relationship of personal identification and fellowship with Christ. Now, if you've been a BTI for a while, when we talk about these views, you'll notice that we always put the right one last. Makes it easy on you. I should have put it in bold. The experiential union, it's a relationship of personal identification and fellowship with Christ. Why do we hold to that view? Well, because it's what the Bible says. Let me go into this in a little more detail. The experiential union. There's a couple of categories of our experiential union with Christ. First of all, there's the category of Christ in us. It's a relationship only for those who have faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You cannot be in Christ without faith. Or Christ cannot, won't be in you without your faith, rather. It's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And this is at Christ's request. Why did the Spirit come to the earth? To indwell men. Because the Lord Jesus Christ asked His Father to send the Spirit. And so from the day of Pentecost on, we have this glorious Christ in us. And let me put it this way, and I don't remember his exact words, but if, I could, if you could allow me the freedom of paraphrasing, Jesus actually told his disciples that when the Spirit comes, in a sense, it will be better for them. Why is that? Well, when they were with Christ, they were next to him. But when the Spirit comes, Christ is in them. And so, of course, that's better. Now, we long to see Christ face to face, but we, we do see him face to face to a certain degree that he is in us. It places Christ's life within us and involves a, a quickening of the human spirit. Galatians 2.20, Romans 8.10. Christ in us needs to be recognized and experientially realized. What does that mean? It means it sh- the, the presence of Christ is shown in your life. Your life is different. What do you call a professing Christian who bears no fruit? Jesus said a worthless branch that's cut off and thrown into the fire. John 15. And so we recognize Christ in us because things are different. Not instantaneously, but noticeably. Noticeably, I, I, I love the testimonies that we get when we do baptisms on Sunday nights because the story is always the same. It's before I was in Christ, here was my life. Once I came to faith in Christ, here's how my life began to change. It's the same story. Galatians 4.19, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And then Christ in us provides hope for the future. Colossians 1.27 tells us this. Why can you not lose your salvation? Well, there's probably a thousand reasons, but one of the main reasons is that Christ is in you. How can you go wrong if Christ is in you? Then you have the flip side, the other category, and that is us in Christ. Us being in Christ. This relationship was planned in eternity past. Do you realize Ephesians 1, 4, the, the, the uh, union with Christ, you were in Him before the foundation of the world. That's been planned. It's affected, means it's brought about by a spiritual identification with Christ. Romans 6, Ephesians 2, we become identified with Christ's death, burial, his resurrection, his position in heavenly places, his future blessedness. That's why when somebody says, well, I don't want to be baptized. I don't want, what, what I interpret that as, I don't want to identify with Christ. What, why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't need to be baptized for the remission of sins, as Peter talks about, um, he was baptized to identify with us. That he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin to identify with us. And so why would you not want to identify with him? So that's an area of obedience that is demonstrated through water baptism. That we identify with his death, his burial, his resurrection. It provides new eternal life. Us in Christ. Again, Romans 6 in three different places. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, 
And we become one spirit with Christ, not inculcated into him as if there's no separation between our spirit and his, but we're one with him. And the closest human equivalent we have to that is, is marriage, the one flesh relationship. You're still two people, but you're very much one. 1 Corinthians six seventeen: he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And we become a new creature, a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If you ever went through any of the navigator's materials years ago, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is the first thing they make you memorize. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So us in Christ. There's quite a few illustrations of this in the, in the New Testament. And I already alluded to one of them. I'll just give you some references. First illustration, I already alluded to this, vine and branches. Vine and branches. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So that's, there's the abiding. And what does he call a branch that doesn't bear any fruit? It's a worthless branch. He cuts it off. Now, does that mean they used to be in Christ and now they're taken away? No, it's an illustration. You don't take it too far. You have union between the Father and the Son. That's an illustration. John 14, 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. There's a connection. How is it that that you are connected to God the Father? You're connected to God the Father because Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And since He's connected to God the Father at that same level, then you are connected to God the Father. And Jesus is literally the bridge between mankind and God. Literally that bridge. John 17, 21 helps us with this as well. The father and son as a, an example. We're a building. This is a big one. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. The cornerstone is Jesus. The foundation of the building, the apostles and the prophets. Do we still have the foundation? Yes, we have the written foundation. This is the foundation of the church. Then you have the individual stones represented as both Jewish and Gentile believers put together in the church. You have the illustration that we're most familiar with, probably here at Grace at least, and that is the illustration of the human body. When I say in the context of our church, when I say the body of Christ, you all know what I'm talking about. We're talking about one another. We're talking about that we are together and we are the body of whom? Of Christ. He is the head. This is why the church trying to do something that Christ doesn't want them to do is ridiculous. It's, my head gives orders to my body. If my arm suddenly starts doing this and I'm looking at it going, why is it doing this? What do we do? We stop it because it's not doing what the head is trying to tell it to do. And we think that's a disorder of some sort. And you have the husband and wife. Ephesians 5, 23 through 32 is a glorious passage because not only does it instruct us on marriage, but it also instruct us, instructs us on the union with Christ. And it's so uh, amorphous, it's so hard to tell sometimes when Paul is talking about one or the other. And it's when, when Scripture is amorphous and, and things flow into one another, that's what it's meant to do. That's what it's meant to do. He's talking about husbands and then all of a sudden he shifts and says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Well, which one is it? Yes, it's both. So we have that glorious illustration. So you have the vine and branches, union between the father and the son, a building. We have the parts of the human body, husband and wife. Wonderful illustrations. There's some implications of our union with Christ. I'm going to spend just a bit on this. The implications of the union with Christ, first of all, it's the antidote to legalism. The antidote to legalism. Uh, legalism is, has crept into the church since the first generation of the church. I mean, Acts chapter 15 already is dealing with legalism in the church, and the, the apostles have to gather together to deal with that. But in Colossians 2.20, the apostle Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. In other words, 
why would you go by rules that men make in order to somehow please God? That's very important. Now, let me, let me make a distinction here. We make rules at Grace Bible Church. You cannot bring coffee in here during the worship service. Is that legalistic? No, because if I said your salvation depends on whether you bring coffee in here or not, now we're legalists, right? R- rules in the world are fine, but rules upon which your standing with God appear, uh, happens, that's not okay. Union with Christ is the antidote to that because Christ in you and you in Christ, there's this communion, there's this fellowship. How is it that, how is it that for example, a new believer who has been living with her boyfriend and she comes to faith and before she ever reads this in the Bible says, I either need to move out or get married. Why is that? Because the spirit of God in her is, is letting her know what you're doing is wrong and she wants to please Christ. And then she's kind of surprised. Huh, look at that. Hebrews 13, keep the marriage bed sanctified, keep it holy. The Bible says what I have known instinctively. And so it's the antidote to legalism. We don't make a, a bunch of rules to somehow um, please the Lord. Do we live by the law of Christ? Absolutely. But that's not legalism. That's love. We, we love Christ and so we obey him. Union with Christ is also the antidote to worldliness. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's always sad to me to see an older professing believer who just is desperately trying to get everything in the world they possibly can. Well, I really want to go to Hawaii. I really want to do this. really want to do that. When you see the new earth someday, Hawaii is going to look like the dump in the back of In-N-Out. What do you do to, to combat worldliness? If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. There's an upward looking to the believer and there's an upward look. And how do you look upward? By knowing the word of God and what it says about Christ. It's an antidote to worldliness. There's lots of things that I want to do in this life. I, I love the outdoors. I like big open spaces. But I don't have to have that because I'm going to have that. The, the new earth, in order uh, to hold new Jerusalem, two things have to happen. First of all, God has to reveal new laws of physics that we don't have now because the specifications of new Jerusalem cannot stand with current physics. There has to be new physics. Secondly, the earth has to be way bigger to support that. What would happen to the earth if New Jerusalem came down now? Apparently, it would turn upside down or, or it would start this spinning thing and blow us right into the sun. So it can't do that. So all the things that you wish for in this world, either they're sinful, give them up, or if they're not sinful and you're not going to have them now, just wait a while. What does Paul say? That the suffering of this present age is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. Oh, I wanted to buy five acres and that was going to fulfill all my dreams and the Lord just gave me 20 million acres on the new earth. I don't know what that's going to be, but listen very carefully. This is, I'm going to say in the top three things that I deal with as a pastor, church members getting off track on worldliness and these dreams that they have and it begins to suck their, uh, their effectiveness, their energy. I start to see them not showing up on Sundays because they are off doing something that they've now become enamored with. So be careful of that. What's the antidote to that? Union with Christ. Looking upward, looking heavenward. Means we're declared righteous. Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1 is very important for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the antidote, by the way, to revilers. Revilers are people, they're unbelievers who use words to, to make you less. We use a different word. We use the word verbal abuse. But revilers in the Bible are people who use words to make you less. How do you, and the, the hard part is they might put a grain of truth to it. Well, you do this, 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 and this, and there might be some truth to it. What is the antidote to that? It is saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm in Christ Yes, I still sin, but I'm in Christ. I have no condemnation. I have been declared righteous. 
I have been justified. And it also means that we live in Christ's strength. What a wonderful promise for us in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now the context there is the Apostle Paul talking about the difficulty of his ministry. But I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why is that? Because Christ is in me. And so the, the implications of union with Christ are huge. And this is what takes you from trying to obey a bunch of rules to just loving your Lord and being in him. I'm going to stop there because the doctrine of glorification is one of my favorite topics. And I'm going to really take my time on that next time, if that's okay with you. Any questions about um, union with Christ? Anybody not believe it? Look at that. Jay, I answered every question in one, one shot. I, I hope that when you come to church every Sunday, I hope that the doctrine of union with Christ is somewhere in your thoughts and in your thinking. You're here because you're in him and he's in you. And then how glorious is it to look around. Christ lives in every person in here. That's, that's amazing. That's astounding. So... That's a glorious thing. But next time we'll do the doctrine of glorification and we're going we're gonna to take our time on that. You ever get a meal at a great restaurant and you just said, I'm going to eat this slower than I usually do. We're going to eat glorification a little more slowly. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you are sanctifying us. Thank you that you sanctified us positionally. You are sanctifying us to be more like Christ. And I pray that that process continues today for myself, for every person here. And we thank you, Lord, for our ultimate sanctification, which is basically the same as our glorification. But most of all, today, Lord, I think we're struck with the fact that Christ is in us and we are in him. That we are one with him. And as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, that when we're united with him physically, when we're with him, that we will always be with the Lord. That when we are with Christ, there will never be a time where we're without Him. And in a great reality, a great sense of reality, that is the case right now. We have the Spirit of Christ within us. And I pray that that notion, that that knowledge would encourage our hearts, Lord. And I pray it would drive us toward sanctification. Because we're never alone. When we think we're sinning in secret, Christ is in us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would walk in the same manner in which he walked because he is in us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. That was heavy stuff. We'll see you in just a few minutes.